The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Hey oh hey oh good Thursday everybody welcome to another edition of today or rather fantasy NBA today I know the name of my own show I'm your host Dan Bespris day nine of the offseason we'll just keep carving little slash marks into the wall here and tally them up at some point we'll stop and I think that stopping point will probably be around when we begin to swing towards the new season again which isn't necessarily the halfway point it's just when you start to flick your mind over to here comes the next one, as opposed to, hey, what happened in that last one? Doesn't matter. Not really relevant to anything we're going to cover on any podcast coming up, but the mental side of fantasy prep. I'm your host, Dan Bespris, at D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S on Twitter. Please do give me a follow. And this show, since its inception, a hoop ball presentation hoop-ball.com the website at hoopball fantasy on twitter or go follow our buddies over at hoopball gaming if you're getting involved over on the wagering side and by the way my leans on yesterday's card were not that great not that great uh i thought philly i wasn't sure that philly was going to take washington seriously because they didn't really get pushed all that hard in the first game but it turns out they got pushed hard enough and so the sixers ratcheted up their intensity Russell Westbrook hurt his ankle, but it didn't really change the outcome of the game all that much. And uh, Philly just put the screws to him. So, And that was the whole thing. That was a perfect example, by the way, yesterday's game, Philly-Washington, of what is known in the gambling community as a correlated parlay, which was, hey, if you thought Philly didn't feel pushed in game one, then they'd go into game two and just outscore the Wizards again. Because it worked fine. They didn't have to... They didn't have to try that hard, and they beat them easily. Despite the fact that Washington shot, what, 54 55% in that ballgame. So if you thought that was the case, you go Washington and the over in game two. And if you thought Philly was awake now, you take Philly and the under. That's how you tie two bets together. It's the only parlay that isn't a total sucker bet. Really, truly, is correlated ones. And some online books won't even let you make a parlay on two bets within the same game, precisely because that's a way to get a little edge on a sports book. If you have a strong feel for how a ball game goes, you could actually kind of build in a couple of those parlays, and it's not the worst idea in the world. In any event, Philly beat the hell out of Washington, and this is always going to be a lopsided series. It's more and more lopsided if Philly's playing defense, and uh, you move along from there. Uh, New York, Atlanta, Hawks actually led this ball game relatively early. Knicks came back and really put the, the clamps on on the defensive side as well. Uh, Knicks got 101 points, and that was enough. And everybody underachieved like a son of a gun in this ballgame. And that might just be the way this series goes because the pace on this ballgame actually had the Hawks somewhere in the, like, 108 expected final total range which is a hell of a lot higher than the 92 they put up. And the Knicks were expected to be kind of in the 1-14, like 1-15 range. Why is theirs a little bit higher? Well, they out-rebounded Atlanta and they had fewer turnovers. 
But that's just an example. Like, both of these teams are basically 14 points under where they should have been. So there might actually be a little bit of value and a potential over, depending on where they set that line. But we'll deal with that when we get there. Real key, of course, once again, Derek Rose. I know Julius Randle's most improved player, and he's their all-star, but Derek Rose kept him in the first one, and he carried him up and over in this one. He's turning out to be a terrific, maybe the best, maybe the best midseason acquisition. So Philly's up two games to none. Knicks and Hawks are now tied at one game apiece. That one heads back to Atlanta. And then Memphis and Utah, the last one on the docket from last night. And Utah was able to uh, pull away just enough. It was one of those weird games where Utah would go up by 14, then Memphis would cut it to 7, and it kind of bounced back and forth and ended up pretty damn close to the number Jazz covered by uh, a bucket when all was said and done. The real bet on that ball game was the over. I liked Memphis. I thought they were going to keep it close. They sort of did. I mean, that was a coin flip, really. It came down to a bucket, basically, at the end of the ball game, um, And that was that. I think they, Memphis, they didn't, yeah, they didn't foul. There were a few buckets in a row for the Jazz down the stretch that sort of opened it up a little bit. Both teams shot 54%. Difference really was that Utah had 19 three-pointers and Memphis only hit eight. That was the ball game right there. You know, 11 of their field goals made were for an extra point. Memphis had a few extra free throws. There, this, this game really could not have been a higher scoring affair. The pace was crazy. And teams overachieved. It was all of the pieces all rolled into one. Like, the the two teams were, I think Utah was supposed to be around 117, 118. Memphis was supposed to be, uh, supposed to be around uh, 115. So, like, this game was going to be in the 230-something range anyway. So, way over. But then they also overachieved. To the tune of 270 damn points. I mean, this was a positively insane basketball game. The next one, the total's been adjusted up to 224 after this one was 219 and a half. So the question there now is, since the last one was supposed to... I mean, this one was expected to be around 230-something anyway. Could it possibly slow down? I think I would probably lean to the under. Just because you've got to think that this game... They they got to start grinding a little bit. This was one where Utah just hit, kept hitting three-pointers. Three after three after three after three. And so, you know, Memphis likes to play fast anyway, but they just traded buckets. And Ja had 47. He's going to have a playoff run here that gets him overdrafted next year in fantasy. It was a good ball game, 47-7, and seven, but, like, there's still a bunch of things that need to be fixed, and I don't know. We'll talk about the fantasy stuff of that later. We're analyzing this from a... a reality standpoint right now which is jaw was great and he was the reason that memphis was able to hang in this ball game uh donovan mitchell came back and was good his minutes will go up in the next one utah had a lot of swagger in this then but 69 free throws on top of everything else that was going on like these things are going to come back to earth a little bit question is is it going to be enough i really don't know i thought the total would have been adjusted up more by than four and a half five points after putting up 270 on a pace that was over the the number that are at right now. So I don't know. I like I want to go back to the under. I want to I want to zag on this one with the expectation that things maybe slow down a little bit. Maybe there's some offensive underachieving that happens. But I also don't know that I'm ready to do it. 
Because even if they were just average, this game would have gone over by 12, 13 points anyway. Instead of 50. <laughs> but without going too much into, and maybe we already did, how the data from Wednesday evening is going to push us towards the next set of ball games. Let's quickly break down the Thursday, tonight's games. Milwaukee is at Miami. Bucks are a one-and-a-half-point road favorite. This is always the one. You talk about if, if the, the lesser, if the underdog is going to get one, it's usually that first game back home when the team, like Milwaukee in this case, up two games to none, feeling their oats off that really easy win in game two. That's the one where maybe... They're not 100% engaged. Total is 226.5. The line of bucks at 1.5 kind of tells you everything you need to know about that ball game. Because Milwaukee just finished beating Miami by 34. They were favored by 5 in that ball game. Total of 223.5. That game ended at a total of 230, with Miami playing pretty terribly. I think their expected final number in that ballgame was supposed to be around 110 or so, so they underachieved by a dozen. Uh, but the Bucks, of course, overachieved by quite a bit. Their expected uh, final total was supposed to be 119, and they were at 132. But what that tells you is that had the Bucks, if both teams had actually performed the way that they were sort of expected to, because the rebounding differential was 61 to 36, the Bucks had just so many more possessions in this ballgame. If the two teams had performed the way they were expected to, total would have actually been pretty close to where it ended up. The difference, I believe, is that as we go to Miami, the Heat are going to want to slow this thing down. They don't want to get in a track meet. They were forced to because the Bucks hit every damn shot they took early, opened up a 25-point lead early, and Miami had no choice but to try to get quick shots. Because you're not going to claw your way back into a game when you're down 25 by eliminating possible possessions. The more possessions you have, the more sort of roll-of-the-dice opportunity you have to get back into a ballgame. It was never really going to happen, but that's the only way you're going to do it. So these big blowouts, teams start to go real fast. I mean, it's, it's actually not all that different from what we just saw in that Washington-Philadelphia game. Washington scored 95 but they were underachieving like you wouldn't even believe. They were supposed to put up a buck 20. They underachieved by 25 points in that ball game. Philly did fine. They were not ultra special. Like they were supposed to be around 110 or so. They overachieved by 10. Not an overwhelming number. Because they didn't hit that many threes. They shot the ball great, but they didn't have many threes and they missed their free throws. But that game actually should have had a final total. It finished at uh, 215. That game should have had a final total of about 15 points higher. It should have been around 230. So the total, the, the total which was built probably, I would assume, on the pace of the ballgame was actually not that far off. Similarly with this one, if, and that was one of those big blowouts where teams had to move fast is sort of the point I was getting at. They didn't get to the mark, but it wasn't for lack of trying with the number of possessions. But if you, again correlated parlays, I think, is the way you're looking at here. If you think Miami dictates the tempo, you take the under and you take the heat. If you think the Bucks dictate the tempo, you probably take Milwaukee and the over. I happen to think Miami and the under is a better combo. Phoenix and the Lakers. Lakers favored by seven. This is a strikingly large number that I cannot figure out quite how it got to where. I mean, I guess it makes sense if you're 
moving the number by about six points because there's fans in the arenas and all that stuff. Um, I don't, like not, the Lakers have not shown me anything, even in that last ball game, to where I should think they can actually cover a seven-point spread. They won by seven in the last ball game, uh, largely because they were better at rebounding and defense, and partially because LeBron was good at hitting his three-pointers, and partially because Chris Paul isn't quite himself. I think I'd be more inclined to just keep riding the under unless we think LeBron and or CP3 are feeling better. I just don't think that they are. I know that LeBron did fine. You look at that last ball game, you're like, 23-4-9, and nine, what are you complaining about, Don? It's not, a, it's not a complaint. It's just watching the game. If we watched LeBron for darn near two decades, he goes to the rack, and he's not right now. He's not elevating. He's not gliding past people the way he usually does. So without him at full strength, and without Chris Paul at full strength, these teams are going to be relying on their defense a lot. So slight lean to the under that ball game. I think you have to lean to, to Phoenix catching seven, although it also feels almost a little bit trappy, even though I, I know that's almost definitely not the case because they're not the Lakers, so you're going to get him a better number. And then finally, Denver and Portland, the late game denied. Portland's favored by four, total of 227 and a half. Last ball game ended uh, very high. The number uh, <laughs> 237, which went over the mark of 224 and a half, despite the fact that the pace actually wasn't that high. Portland had an expected final number of about 108. That's with a lot of free throws, by the way. They just weren't playing that fast. So Portland was right on the money. They had 109. They were expected to be around 108 because their turnovers were super high, but everything else was actually pretty good. And then Denver, they went blitzing past their mark, which was actually supposed to be about 113. 108 and 113 together is 221. They got to 237 because Denver shot 54%. Probably would have been even higher if the Scrubs didn't miss a few shots in the last two minutes of that ball game. So that's what you're banking on here. Do the starters come back to earth a little bit? Dame in particular. I know Jokic, like, no one's stopping either of those guys completely, but Jokic shooting 75% is pretty ridiculous. The 58 combined free throws is pretty ridiculous. The only thing that kept this thing from being even higher, being in the 240s, was that Portland had 21 turnovers, uh, but some of those led to easy Denver buckets. So it, it wasn't like it limited the number of possessions. It was fast possessions the other way and points. I hate to say it because it's going to be a, a brutal thing to watch, and Portland doesn't really want to slow it down. When Jokic is on the floor, the pace is not fast. So if this is a tight ball game, he's going to play a crap ton of minutes. He probably will anyway. What did he play in their last ball game? Actually, only 31. They kept his minutes in check. When he's out, the game moves faster. Nuggets run a bit more. When he's in, they're going to use him in the half court almost every single time. And then Dame hit nine three-pointers. If he's not that lava hot, that holds the total down a little bit. So I'm back to the well. If at first you don't succeed, I mean, this is also the definition of insanity, but the total keeps moving up, and I actually think it's creating some room for us. What did I say that last one was supposed to be? 221? I don't know how that game goes faster. So anyway, uh, that's what I'm looking at tonight. I like Miami. 
I like the under in that ball game. I like the under in the middle game. I like the under in the third one. Uh, side, I don't really know. Portland, Denver. I have, I have no idea who's going to shoot the ball well. So, whatever. All right. Let's talk fantasy a little bit. But before we do talk fantasy, I want to remind all you guys to check out our buddies over at manscaped.com. Use coupon code HOOPBALL20 to get 20% off and free shipping on your order. Check out some of their packages, which I know they... I'm sure they threw that word around knowing exactly what everybody was going to think of. They've got the Ultra Smooth Package. If you want to go with an actual razor, they've got the Perfect Package 3.0 and now the all-new Performance Package with the brand-new Lawn Mower 4.0. I mean, they've got some good stuff over there at Manscaped.com. Please do check them out. Uh, These packages are just a bunch of stuff lumped together. You actually save a, a crap load of money off their normal price by doing it that way. And then if you get the package... And use the coupon code HOOPBALL20, pull another 20% off of that. So some of these package deals are a couple things rolled together. They're already saving you 20 30% that way. Then you save another 20% using our delightful code, which again, H-O-O-P-B-A-L-L, and the number's 20 at manscaped.com. HOOPBALL20, go get yourself groomed, you sick, disgusting beast. I'm recycling a fantasy lesson for today, and maybe I should feel guilty about that, but I don't. And the fantasy lesson of the day is D-D-I-P. Don't draft injured players. I might have to do another damn show about this leading up to draft day, Because no matter how many times I say it, and this, by the way, and you know who you are out there, because it's many of you on Twitter, many of you do this to me, and this drives me completely insane. You guys know what I'm about to say? It's when I spend an entire preseason talking about how you must not, do not, must not, do not, must not draft a particular guy Who's injured? And then four weeks into the season, I start getting Twitter questions. Hey, what should I do with this guy? Like, dude! No! I will not answer that question. I won't. Very few things make me as irritated because... It's not because you did something that isn't working out for your team. It's because I'm not going to... That means you're not listening. It means you're not listening. And you don't have to take every one of my takes... But if you disregard one of my takes, I'm not going to be the guy to help you fix it. And I know that I took Kemba Walker in a couple of spots this year, which was kind of dumb. Roto Games Cap, you can get away with this stuff a little bit more. But that's actually my format of choice, and I still don't recommend drafting injured players. Because most of you guys probably have a bench that's three or four roster slots deep. And that's not enough. You are, you're playing fantasy basketball with one hand tied behind your back. Let's talk Roto first because it's a shorter discussion here. In Roto, you do not draft injured players. Mostly because you're using up a draft pick that's early enough that could be utilized on something else. 
Take Kristaps Porzingis, for instance, who actually turned out to be like a decent value this year. It's fine. In Roto, he turned out to be okay. But what if he was out longer? I think we can all agree he came back quicker than most of us expected. Because this is Porzingis we're talking about. Nothing ever is moving quick with that dude. He came back faster than expected. Well, what if he actually missed the amount of time we assumed he would coming into the season? What does that do to your fantasy team? Well, for one, let's first look where Chris Dops was drafted. Generally, generally, he was drafted in the late 40s or early 50s. If you got really lucky, he might have fallen into the 60s or 70s, which makes the discussion a little bit different, but not all that much. I'm looking at a uh, relatively competitive league that I'm in and where Porzingis got drafted, and the guys that went around him in this league, DeMar DeRozan, Gordon Hayward before, Jonas Valanciunas, Tobias Harris after. There are plenty of other really interesting guys that went in there. Miles Turner... Jalen Brown, Lonzo, Kyle Lowry. All these guys are in the same vicinity as Kristaps Porzingis. And yes, it's true, on a per-game basis, he was number 22 or 23, which put him ahead of basically all of those guys. Tobias was 27. Uh, Where was Kyle Lowry this year? He was in the 50s. Jonas Valanciunas had that brilliant second half that rocket-boosted him to number 33 by averages on the year. But then, but then, you look at totals where Porzingis played 45 games, and the rest of the guys we were talking about, like Jonas Valanciunas, he played 65 games. He was number 27 by totals this year, and Porzingis was number 83. And yeah, I get it. You're going to add this season 27 Dante DiVincenzos to Porzingis, and you're going to add only seven Dante DiVincenzos to Jonas Valanciunas, but I don't know that that makes up the difference. In fact, I would venture to guess that it probably doesn't. In addition to the fact that where you're drafting these guys, you can usually get someone more interesting. By the way, uh, just a little corollary here. The reason I was willing to take Kemba Walker where I was, which is basically near 100, is that the guys that were, we did this discussion last week, the guys that were being drafted around him were like James Wiseman, Josh Richardson, uh, Norman Powell, who turned out to be pretty good, Blake Griffin, Tyler Hero. So you're not really giving up anything there. You're getting... These other guys that are getting drafted nearer to Kemba were guys that were probably going to be... You're lucky if they're going to be inside the top 100. You're very lucky if they're inside the top 90. And, like, one of the names that I'm looking at here had a decent fantasy season. So that's why you're like, okay, like, if I get 45 games out of Kemba and then I throw in 27 Dante DiVincenzos on that, the other guys that I'm looking at here are basically Dante DiVincenzo. So I don't want 72 DiVincenzos. I want 45 Kembas and 27 Dantes, if that makes sense. So, end of corollary. The other reason that you don't want to draft an injured player in Roto is because it occupies a roster slot. And it occupies a roster slot that you're not going to drop 
So it's a lock. It's a locked nothing. It's it's not costing you much in the in the individual short term, like on a week to week. It's not costing you all that much, but it is hamstringing you in a couple of ways. One, you're not going to be able to make the right drops when you're going to try to pick someone up off the waiver wire. Why do I know that's the case? Well, because other guys on your team are going to get hurt. So they're also going to be guys you have to decide whether or not you're going to drop them. And you're going to have guys on your team that you're forced to play, even though they're not very good, simply because you're, the guy that you wanted to play is hurt to start the year. And in Roto, you want to start the year by playing a bunch of good players. You don't want to waste games played at the very beginning of the season. So it's very hard to decide who to drop. The example of this, anecdotes, those are always good for selling, is me. Rob Covington, four years ago in Philadelphia, where he got off to that wretched start. He was shooting like 20-something percent for the first five or six weeks. And I had a couple guys get hurt on my team. And I think I may have even drafted one hurt player. But guess what? I couldn't drop the hurt player because I knew he was going to be, he was a lock. It was like some top 50 guy, like a fourth or fifth round pick. He was a lock. So I had to drop Rob Covington, who I didn't want to drop. I was going to wait it through, but I had injured guys, and it forced my hand because I was only had like seven, eight guys that I could start. I was falling so far behind in games played, I had to do something. So I had to drop uh, a very cold player that I didn't want to. So again, there are exceptions. We talked about this before. Generally outside the top 75 or 80. Definitely outside the top 90. You could take someone who is sort of a guaranteed uh, better, significantly better than ADP type of injured player in Roto. Head-to-head is where this rule is hard and fast. Do not, under any circumstance... Draft an injured player at the start of the year in your head-to-head league. Don't do it. Mathematically, we showed you why over the last three days of shows. Because this, the tools we just used to analyze when you should pick up or drop an injured player apply to someone hurt at the beginning of the year. And it's even more so because... I know what you're thinking as I say it. You're saying in your mind, you're like, okay, Dan, well, we, we, we set these thresholds. Like if, if someone's injured at the beginning of the season and they say, well, he's expected to miss about the first month of the year, you could say, okay, that's four, four or five weeks, something in that neck of the woods. Uh, well, we already ran the numbers on this. So if someone's going to be out four or five weeks, I can still hold on to them provided they're inside the top 90. Ah, eh, not really. Because you're spending draft capital to get those guys where you get them. Like Kristaps Porzingis, who, yeah, he only missed about the first month of the season before coming back, but then he missed all those other games intermittently throughout the year, and it ended up with him missing almost two months, something like seven to eight weeks worth of games by the time the season was done. And that is where comparing Porzingis's totals to the other guys drafted around him in the fifth or whenever got late fifth, I think, early sixth round, becomes very reasonable. 
Yeah, he beat a couple of the other guys that were drafted near him, like Hassan Whiteside, who was just an absolute disaster this year. That was a risk that was not worth taking. He beat Kelly Oubre and John Wall. Those guys were going off the board somewhere in that neck of the woods. But for the most part, he got clubbed by these dudes drafted near him in the fifth or sixth round that played most of the season. If you drafted a fifth rounder that wasn't badly hurt, he almost, I can almost guarantee he beat Kristaps Porzingis in totals on the year. And the reason for that is that KP was hurt to start the season. Jaron Jackson Jr. was drafted not far from Porzingis. He was also a guy going in the fifth, sixth round. It's that same thing. Yeah, there's some upside there, but there's the the ramp up to getting back to full speed. There's the games missed on back-to-backs. You have to look at the guys being drafted around these players. And if there are guarantees, because there will be, near those guys, you have to take the guarantees. It's not like what we are in a vacuum, which is kind of what we were talking about on the injury front the last three days on the show. In a vacuum, it's... I think it's easier to make the case to, to hold on to an injured guy. But you're not talking about draft capital in that discussion. You're talking about someone that was just already on your team, and then they got hurt, and you're trying to decide what to do with them. If you know someone is already hurt, you're talking about best-case scenarios be, like getting anywhere near where you draft them in a head-to-head league. And then I know what you guys are thinking. The counter to that is, well, if I can survive their absence, then they'll help me in the playoffs. Well, let me ask you guys this. Did Kristaps Porzingis sitting out two games in Mavs five-game week or Kemba Walker sitting out every other game, did that really help you guys? Or JJJ sitting out every other game and playing 25 minutes on a time, uh, a minutes cap. Did that help you guys in your fan, in your head-to-head playoffs? It just doesn't work the way that way anymore. Where guys that are out for an extended stretch at the beginning of the year are magically playing big minutes and hard in every game down the stretch. I think this year uh, probably was worse than most. And, you're, and the guys that were hurt coming into this season were guys that are sort of chronically hurt. Not JJJ necessarily, but, but KP and Kemba. You knew those guys were not going to play back-to-backs even once they got back and healthy. If there's a young guy that is uh, coming back from injury, maybe they work their way up, back up to playing in back-to-backs. But I'm just thinking about coming into next year. The guys that are coming into next season hurt, probably, at the start of the year are guys like uh, Jonathan Isaac is hurt to start the year because he missed this entire season. Um, uh, do, 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 do. Jamal Murray is going to be hurt to start next year. Uh, Clay Thompson is going to be hurt to start. Thomas Bryant, Markel Fultz. I legitimately, out of that entire list, I don't know that any of those guys plays in back-to-backs next season. I don't think Jonathan Isaac does. So he's a guy you probably can't think about in head-to-head. Jamal Murray almost definitely doesn't because he'll probably be back late next season or midway through, and then there will be a long ramp-up. 
Thomas Bryant probably doesn't play in back-to-backs. Markel Fultz. Markel's maybe the one guy that by the end of the year, perhaps he is, but he's not that great at fantasy anyway. He was number 228 this year in his eight games before he got hurt. If you think he's magically going to fix his fantasy game during uh, an offseason spent in you know rehabbing an injury, I, I'll, I got a bridge I can sell you. So there's just no reason to do it. I don't care how much upside there might be there. They're probably not hitting it. It's like a 12% hit rate on these guys. That's terrible. When the guys around them in drafts, think about where some of these guys are going to get drafted. I mean, Jamal Murray's not going to get drafted that early, but it's not going to be that late because people are gonna be like, oh, maybe he'll be back by January or December or something like that. The people are going to delude themselves into thinking it's going to be a best-case scenario. And Jonathan Isaac, he's a second-rounder. Maybe he goes relatively early. He's got the best case out of all of them because he got hurt in July of last year. So he should be good by October, but still, no way he's playing in back-to-backs probably the whole year, and I would doubt until the very bitter end. And the other part of this discussion, and this is actually going to push into our uh, weekend show tomorrow, although I think our Friday shows for now are going to be pretty focused on playoff stuff. I don't know, it just feels like one day of the week we should really be paying attention to what's going on in the playoffs and not just how to bet it but also the the actual basketball happening. But our next fantasy discussion, I haven't decided. Maybe we'll touch on it a little bit on tomorrow's show. If not, it'll be on Monday. Either way, whatever, guys, right? We got got plenty of time. It's day nine of the offseason, after all. The thing I want to touch on uh, briefly today and then much more in our next fantasy-focused show is the advantage of getting a top two seed in a head-to-head league, which to me is the main reason to not draft an injured player and to not hold an injured player getting you zeros if they're outside the cut lines that we just figured out over the last three days leading up to today. It's so critically important. From a broad overview standpoint, and then we'll get into the math of it a little bit more Uh, on a future show, but from a broad overview standpoint, the benefit to being a first or second round or a first or second seed is enormous. You get to skip a week. You only have to go through two weeks of playoffs. You only have to win one week, said this yesterday, to get to cash. Yeah, we all want to take first place, but it's not going to happen every year. But if you could basically guarantee yourself second place, wouldn't you do it forever? Where in one instance, uh, someone's like, well, you got a one in six chance of getting first place or second place. But in the other one, it's like, well, you got like a like a uh, better than 50-50, I think. Yeah, almost definitely. Or in the, other, in the other instance, it's like, well, you got a 70% chance of getting second place, uh, but a 0% chance of getting anything else. Which doesn't make any sense because it should need to add up to 100, but you guys can catch my meaning. Like a 70% chance of getting second place and a 6% chance of getting 1st, 3rd, 4th, 5th, or 6th. And the other one is, you got like a 1 in 6 chance of getting anything through the top 6, which is what, about 16%, something like that. So yeah, in one of those, you're going to get 1st place a heck of a lot more, but in the other one, you're guaranteeing profit every year forever. Pretty much 
Well, okay, not every year. 70% of the time, 76% of the time you're profiting. It's a smaller profit, but we'll do that math the next time we do a show. Anecdotally, it sounds like the right move. We'll find out if it actually is when we break things down a little bit further. Also, anecdotally, doesn't it sound nice to not have to play in one round of the playoffs? You only have two chances to lose instead of three. And not only that, someone has to, like, there's a chance that a sixth place team might just slip through. Like, another good team, maybe there's a really good team in third, and you were in second, and you're like, ah, oh, crap, I don't really want to have to deal with this team. Maybe they just get really unlucky the first week of the playoffs and get knocked out because of injuries. That happened to me this year. I got knocked out in the second round because of injuries. But guess what? If I had a top two seed, that wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have mattered. I could have spent the previous week just watching all my guys get hurt, and I could have made moves that week to make sure that I went into the semifinals healthy. I had to make two moves the first day of the semifinals just to get rid of injured guys on my team. And then four more guys got hurt on my team. So I ended up taking zeros from two dudes. If I didn't take zeros from two guys and I had and I was able to sub in players, I'd have won that week. I might have lost in the finals, but I'd taken home a profit. You can also pick up the guys that you're targeting for the following week. Guys are the five-game week. Like the, in this time, the semifinals would have been Teams like the Raptors, Malachi Flynn, the Thunder had five games that week. I couldn't do that because neither of those teams had a good week. The previous one, Raptors had a two-game week, the one before. So you couldn't pick up Raptors the week before unless you had a bye. And it's not going to be quite so extreme next year because teams aren't going to be jamming in a bunch of postponed games the final three weeks of the regular season. So you're not going to have this, like, some teams that play 14 games in three weeks or whatever dumb crap was happening. But you are going to have teams that have good and bad schedules. And one way to avoid having to deal with it is to get a first round bye. I'm actually really excited to get into the math of this a little bit. Because there's sort of in the vacuum math where you assume all six top teams have the same probability of winning. There's also reality math, which is assuming that the top two teams or really there's a sort of stagger to it. The first team is better than the second, is better than the third, and so on down to the sixth place team, which even makes it more lopsided to get into those top two seeds, although self-fulfilling prophecy, I guess. If you're in the top two seeds, are you the better team, or are you the one that just utilized games played more effectively during the regular season? You know what? I don't care. That's why we're going to do some analysis in a vacuum, where maybe you're in the, the two seed, but your team actually isn't better than the five seed. You were just better at managing games during the regular season. Well, guess what? You don't have to play twice to get to the finals. You only have to win a coin flip one time. It's a pretty big difference between a 50-50 shot and a one in four shot. Just saying. But it doesn't work like that. And so we'll break it all down. And that'll be our next fantasy show. Fantasy lesson number I don't know what. On the next episode of Fantasy NBA Today, why the top two seeds are so important in a head-to-head league and why Dan, me, I, was a little bit too dumb and got too greedy. It all ties together, ladies and germs. It all ties together. 
Okay, folks, have a wonderful Thursday. Enjoy the playoff games tonight. We'll talk a lot about playoff basketball on tomorrow's show. I think that's probably what we're doing heading into the weekend. But you know what? I don't actually know for sure. And it doesn't matter because it's the offseason. Day nine in the books. We'll see you later. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.